Grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. When's the last time the Lord gave you a sign? Well, I'm not sure we can really answer that question, of course, because just because the Lord gives you a sign does not mean we always recognize it. More accurate would be to ask you, when's the last time you recognized a sign from the Lord? And where was it pointing? A sign always signifies something. So when we look at a street sign, and it's got an arrow that says detour, we know it's signifying something bigger. Like, don't go straight ahead, turn here. It points to something symbolic. A sign signifies something because it points to something symbolic, a greater truth, a deeper reality, more substance. There's an example of this right after our text for today where Jesus cleanses the temple. And in order to understand these signs in John, it's important to go to that particular text. Jesus comes to the temple and he finds that the people there are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers are changing out you know, Roman coins for, for Jewish coins. They're trading. They're making sure that people have animals for sacrifice. But in the meantime, they're also causing a lot of turmoil there in the temple, and they're skimming off the top. And Jesus tells those people, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, when the Jews see what Jesus is doing, they respond with a question. And they say, what sign do you show us to prove that you have authority to do these things? They ask for a sign. And Jesus gives them a sign. He says, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. So the sign is that the temple will be destroyed, and then Jesus is going to build it back up. Now, those who are standing on know that Jesus doesn't have an army or a construction company, and they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. Now, behind the scenes, John enters a little parenthesis, and he says, in case you didn't know, Jesus was talking not about the temple built with stones, but he's talking about his body. And then he says, now the disciples remembered this, not at this particular moment, but after Jesus was raised from the dead, they remembered what he said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So you see, Jesus gave a sign. The sign was a sign of the temple being destroyed, but the real thing wasn't the temple. Jesus had come to cleanse the temple of its corruption in worship, And to purify it. But the real thing wasn't the temple. The real thing was his body. Dying and being raised from the dead. So signs always signify something. And after Jesus' resurrection, 
John reports that these particular signs that Jesus is talking about were written for this purpose, that you would believe in Jesus and have eternal life. That's the goal. That's where the sign is pointing, to Jesus, to his death, resurrection, and eternal life. And you have to know that and you have to pay attention to that because otherwise signs can get you off track. You can think you see a sign that tells you to go this way or that way, but what if the person who put it up didn't know what they were doing? Or what if it was just a coincidence or what if it was an accident? You know, everything is not just divine signs. The divine signs are the ones that point us where God really wants us to go. And in the scriptures here, it's to Jesus. Signs can be misunderstood. And they misunderstood what Jesus was talking about when he said to destroy the temple and build it back. Now, in the Gospel of John, you have seven signs. And we're going to look at one in particular today. It's called the first of the signs. And then there's a second sign. And then it goes on, and you kind of have to pay attention to when this word sign pops up to see what are those seven signs in John. Why are there seven? What are they directing us to? So we'll deal with this first sign, the wedding at Cana. And at the wedding here, Jesus initiates his public ministry, and it says that for the first time, he makes his glory known. And they believe in him. But more important than the fact that Jesus did this amazing thing, which I'm sure any of us, if there's anyone out here who's ever been the father of a bride and has had to be in charge of paying for the banquet feast, would be glad to have Jesus at their wedding because, of course, you could just fill up the water for free and there you have all the wine you need. But the significance is not about how amazing the miracle is. It's not about how fantastic it is that Jesus can just make wine out of nothing. He could have made it out of nothing, but in fact, he didn't make it out of nothing. He made it out of water. And every one of these little details are things we should pay attention because a sign is pointing us somewhere. And the shape of the sign, the details of the sign, the wording of it is all going to point us towards something bigger. It begins with understanding significance. What's the significance of a Jewish wedding? So the first wedding that the Jewish people ever knew about was Adam and Eve. And it takes us back to the Garden of Eden. In chapter 2 of Genesis, back to a time when there was nothing but joy. Back to a time where there was no death of a loved one. Back to a time where there were no fights and arguments. Back to a time where you didn't get angry at your kids and yell at them. Back to a time where there was no divorce. A time where God was in charge and God was celebrating life. So the Garden of Eden pictures for us heaven. A time where it's nothing but enjoying God's presence and joy. And marriage is supposed to represent that abundance. The abundance of God in giving us his blessings, in providing the garden and the fruit and all the good things of Eden, in being with us and being at peace with us. So the Jewish people would remember Eden by celebrating the seven-day festival. So weddings in those days would take seven days long, in most cases, where people would come to town, they would stay 
over, and there'd be this ongoing celebration for seven days. Seven days picturing the seven days of creation culminating in the marriage. Now, this wedding in particular must have been something involving Jesus' family. So you have close family. It says his mother was there, and it says Jesus himself was invited. So likely he was related to somebody else in the wedding party. And there they run out of wine. For the hosts of this meal, or for the family of Jesus, this is very embarrassing. It means that the people who have come and they've taken all this time off from the harvest, they're staying there for seven days, are not going to have any wine. And Mary tells Jesus about the problem. Now, why is Jesus' mom brought into this story? Why, why is she emphasized? She could have been anonymous, but his mom is there, and it's mentioned particularly that she tells Jesus they're out of wine. Well, I'd say it doesn't matter how old you are. Maybe you know this. You can be an adult. You can be 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, and mom is still mom, and you're still her little boy. Now, whether Mary fully understands this or not is not really the point, but the point is to see Mary is asking Jesus to do something, and his response is this. Woman, what does it have to do with me? So Jesus is seeing a change in this relationship between him and his mom. Jesus knows he's about to enter into his ministry and mission as the Messiah for all the world. He's, he's a man now. And it's not going to be up to any individual, even his own mom, to try to tell him what to do. But I almost take it as a piece of humor when her response to that is, do whatever he tells you to the servants. Because to me, I just can't help but hearing a mom's way of answering a, a no question by turning it around and, and just almost implying, well, he's going to do it anyways. Because he loves his mom. So she says, rather than, okay, he's not going to do it, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. But in this also, you see, her expectations are changing. What are your expectations of Jesus? When you're looking for a sign, or you're looking for a miracle, or you're in a situation that's embarrassing or difficult, or you're running out of resources, what do you expect Jesus to do? And maybe you come to him the first time, and he says, the hour has not yet come. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe you're misunderstanding why he's here for you. Maybe he's not here to relieve that difficulty or provide that thing you need. He says to her, my hour has not yet come, and yet she leaves it in his hands. So when she says, Tell, do whatever he tells you, it's our way of praying in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. If Jesus doesn't do it, that's his will. If he does, and he does. There are six stone jars. Each has 20 to 30 gallons. So if you've done the math, and some of you are doing it more slowly than others, you have about 150 gallons 
worth of water, which are then turned into 150 gallons worth of wine. Does that seem like a lot of wine to anyone? That's a lot of wine, especially toward the end of the feast. And now he brings out the best wine and the most of it. Jesus gives in abundance. Now, these stone jars are used for ritual cleansing, which means normally this would need water that needs to be purified in a special way. And then it's used in a ritual for washing your hands before and after a meal. A meal is a sacred thing, and so this wedding is a sacred thing. And Jesus takes these waters of purification, and he purifies them in a much greater and newer way. When the water comes out to the host, it's not just water turned into any old wine, but it's water turned into the very best. The master of the feast is amazed And he doesn't know where it's come from, but the servants know. Jesus has kept himself secret. And he says to the bridegroom, you've given the best first. Or normally the best is given first. And once the guests have all drunk and the feasts have gone on and they've kind of dulled their senses, then you've given the lesser wine. Then you would give the cheaper stuff because they wouldn't know as well at that point. But you've saved the best for last, he says. Now, if a sign means it's pointing to something greater, remember, these details matter. They're trying to tell us something. What would you say at this point? Just think about it. What is it trying to tell us about Jesus? It's not just his power to do a miracle. If it was that, it would just be called a miracle. But when it's a sign, it means something more. So why would it say in particular, you saved the best for last? Just let you think about that. So this is the first of his signs where he manifests his glory. Wine is significant in the Bible for a number of reasons. In the Psalms, it says that wine gladdens the heart of men. So wine in particular is is a celebration. It's something that brings joy to the person that drinks it. Wine gladdens the heart. But more than that is where does wine come from? Okay, where does wine come from? Grapes. Okay, does wine appear overnight? Okay, backing up a ways, do grapes appear overnight? No. Do grapes appear in a month? No. So a season of growing and harvesting grapes takes a long time, and even after planting grapevines, you know it doesn't even produce in the first year. It might be two, it might be three years before you start to get grapes, and they ripen, and then you can harvest them, and then you can finally crush them and start to make the wine. But even then, the wine has to sit, it has to ferment for a time until it cures. And if it's going to be the very best wine, is it the stuff that you let cure quicker or longer? Longer. So you put all this together. Now, Jesus is looking to the end of the feast. He's bringing out the best wine, the oldest wine, the the richest wine, And this whole process, from farming to harvesting to drinking, he's done in a moment. What is this teaching us? 
In Numbers chapter 20, it talks about how the people were out in the wilderness. And they were journeying through the wilderness. They had left Egypt. And they've run out of, not wine, but water. Now in the desert, what's going to be more important? That you have wine or water? Water. And they have no water. Water you need every day. Now wine is something different. Water you need every day. So the very basic necessities of life they've run out and they begin to say to Moses why didn't you just let us die in Egypt at least we could have had good food and drink there they say there's where are the grain where are the figs you promised us where are the vines where are the pomegranates and you can't even provide water now water is a daily necessity and when you hear the story of the wilderness it seems that God is not only not providing the very best, but he's not even providing the very least of necessities. Have you ever experienced that? Where you're not even just looking for the very best stuff that life could offer, but you're just asking for a drink of water. You're just asking for God to do the small necessities to get you through today and tomorrow. And it doesn't seem to be happening. Well, Psalm 30 reminds us that God's anger is for a moment, but his favor is for life. His anger is for a moment, his favor is for life. And then it says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. All of this is teaching us something about God. God in our lives God in our struggles, God in the wilderness, and God in marriage. You know, marriage can bring its own sense of difficulties, sorrow. And most married couples I've talked to or counseled, it usually comes at the beginning. And it can come soon, it can come over the first few years, but you you begin to realize life isn't quite maybe what you thought it was going to be on the wedding night. And yet, when we get married, we celebrate. We have that symbol of marriage to be an everlasting joy that God's giving us, and then we get into a couple weeks into the marriage, and suddenly things have gone wrong. They didn't turn out the way that that we imagined it to. Jesus has to remind us how God's timing works. He tells his mom, my hour has not yet come. For Jesus, this means that life isn't going to be easy for him. He says, my hour has not yet come. And this phrase comes up again in chapter 12. In chapter 12, this phrase comes up again when it says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and now he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, There will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, we should remember that again when Jesus says, okay, now my hour has come. And that's the beginning of the the last week of Jesus' life, the passion narrative in chapter 13. And Jesus is saying that a grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die before it's going to give what? Fruit. And fruit which then can be made into wine. What is the sign talking about? My hour has not yet come. And then he does the miracle. And in the miracle is a sign pointing ahead to what it all means. And what it means is that Jesus has saved the best for last. The master of ceremonies is so amazed because usually you would give your guests the very best at first. They'd drink the wine and then be dulled a little bit to their taste of it. And then you'd bring out the lesser wine. But that's not the way Jesus does it. In fact, the whole world is kind of caught up in this pattern of trying to get the best first in thinking that things need to happen immediately. And when things don't go well, when things turn sour, the world says, well, numb your senses. Turn to entertainment. Turn to alcohol. Turn to drugs. Turn to things that will numb you from this experience of pain and Just make you feel blah. Well, the problem with that is it just wears off over time. At first, alcohol, drugs, sex, entertainment, uh, power, all of those things might seem great at first, but then it wears off, it becomes dull. And if you look at marriage that way, I guarantee it's going to be filled with trouble and fail. Instead, Jesus says, be ready for the long journey. In the wilderness, he gives us water because he needs to get us through that necessity of just needing him every day to drink from him before, in the end, he will finally give us the wine. Jesus' miracle is alluding to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 25 that we read earlier, where Isaiah is predicting how the Lord is going to hold a feast. And in Isaiah 25... He's talking to a people that are in the wilderness again. And he says, on this mountain, the Lord will make a feast of the very best food and the very best wine, and he will swallow up death forever. When Jesus rises from the dead, when he conquers death, he's opening for us a banquet, a marriage with God, That will never end. He saves the best for last. But before the resurrection comes, before the very best celebration can come, before the Israelites can get to the promised land to build homes, to start farms, to plant seeds, to grow vines, to create wine, there's a journey and there's a war. It's not until God has brought us to the final resting place, the land where we've settled in and found our home, that we can finally celebrate that joy. When Jesus chooses these jars, there's only six of them. 
And there's six because the seventh has not yet come. The completion of creation, the rest of the Sabbath, those symbols in the Bible that we keep coming across are not yet complete until Jesus rises from the dead. So John will point ahead. He'll give us the first sign, which is the water into wine. He will give us the second sign, which is which is it's somewhere in there. I remember because it says this was the first sign and then it says this was the second sign and then it never says this was the third sign. After that point, John is like, if you haven't caught on by now, you probably need to go back and start over. This was the first sign, then he says this was the second sign, and then he says, I'm going to leave it to you to catch on where the rest of these signs are. And then when you count every time the word sign is used, you end up with six at the very end until the final sign of the resurrection is seven. Isaiah 25 says he will swallow up death forever. And when God swallows up death and you're finally taken through the veil that is covering over this world, through the sorrow, through the tears, he brings you to heaven. And then he creates a new creation. And it's Eden reimagined, recreated, and resurrected so that we can enjoy the eternal marriage feast with Jesus himself for all eternity. Amen.